you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 10. The Gospel according to John chapter 10. A few years ago, I went out duck hunting early one morning, and it was a bitterly cold morning with a friend out in some flooded timber. In fact, it was so cold, we actually had to break ice to get where we were going. Some ducks started working, and I shot one, and it fell a few yards away, and I didn't have a retriever to go fetch it. I was the dog. And so I headed over to get the duck, and when I did, I slipped, and some cold water poured down into my waders. Well, I went back to my friend. He had driven that day, and I said, hey, can I get your keys, go back to your truck, and change clothes? And so he handed me his keys, and I headed back to the truck. Well, on my way back to the truck, I actually stepped into a really deep hole, and water began to rapidly rush into my waders, and I didn't know what to do, but I frantically began to try to swim in waders. That does not work out well. But in the Lord's providence, there was a tree nearby that I grabbed, and I clung to this tree for my dear life. At that point, I had dropped my bag that had all my shotgun shells, my knives, my calls, my license, all at the bottom of this flooded timber. I lodged my shotgun up into the tree, and I tried to pull myself up, but here's the catch. My waders were full of water, and there was no way I was going to be able to do that. So I unsnapped my waders, snapped them onto the branches, pulled myself out of the waders and up into the tree. I thought this day could not get any worse until I realized that I had dropped my friend's keys into the water. So I began to cry. I mean, literally, I was crying in this tree, soaking wet in 30-degree weather in the middle of nowhere. And then I began to frantically call for my friend. So as I called for my friend, he began to make his way over to me, which actually took a while because he couldn't find me. And when he finally got to me, he was unable to come help get me out of the tree because it was all over his head as well. So I had nothing else to do but to make a swim for it. So I jumped in this water and swam towards him. When I got to him, he pulled me up from my swimming position into my feet. As I'm standing there onto my feet, if you've ever worn waders, you realize that is your shoes. And I had to walk out of there barefoot. But it didn't matter. My body was completely numb at this point anyway. So we're headed back to some dry land. And when we finally get to the dry land, his idea was to put me into his truck, turn it on, warm me up, and also give me a dry change of clothes. Now here was the problem. He just found out I had dropped the keys in the water. So he pivoted and began to pull off some of my wet clothes and give me some of his dry clothes. Now I have to rewind the story just a bit. The evening before, I told Katie, I have a great pair of waders. They keep me dry, but they're really thin, and so I get cold. And so I have to bundle up to the point where I'm uncomfortable out in the duck woods, and it's just not working. She said, well, I have a solution for you, but I don't think you're going to want to do it. And I said, well, why don't you try me? She said, pantyhose. <laughs> and I said, there's no way. I may not be the man's man, and I don't care what NFL quarterback wears pantyhose in the middle of winter on the football field. I'm not that guy. Well, that evening we went to the store and I got out of the car and I thought, it is already cold. I can't imagine how cold it's going to be out in the duck woods the next morning. So we walked in the store and I laid my man card on the table and I looked at her and I said, what size do you think I wear? <laughs> so we headed over to the pantyhose section and she grabbed a couple of packs and she handed them to me and I said, I don't know why, but I said, is there any other colors besides those? And she said, seriously, who's going to see these? Little did she know 
The next day when I'm lying on the ground dying and my friend is pulling clothes off of me, he literally steps back and says, why are you wearing pantyhose? <laughs> and I mumbled something about my wife and he continued to help me. But also, not only was that tree there in the Lord's providence, there was something else that was there in the Lord's providence that day. There was a, a friend that I did a lot of fishing with and he was parked there that morning and I recognized his truck and he was actually out hunting with his boys. And every time we fished, he would take his truck keys and put them in the gas lid of his truck. And I always thought to myself, that is so bizarre. Why would he do that? Now in hindsight, I look back, it was brilliant. Because we opened that gas lid and sure enough, the keys were there. And I got in my friend's truck and turned it on and sat there for an hour and a half thawing out while my buddy's wife brought him a spare set of keys to be able to get us home. Now, of course, I had to explain to my other friend the next day when I saw him why he went fishing with a full tank of gas and came back, and there was only a quarter of a tank left in the truck. But the day ended with a really nice fellow in a flat-bottom boat who paddled me back out to that tree so that I could retrieve my shotgun out of the tree. I got to tell you, that was the absolute worst day of my life. In all of my 40 years, that is number one on the list. I mean, it was a day that was marked with struggle, tension, strife, toil, worry, helplessness, and most of all, insecurity. I had no idea if I was going to make it out of there alive. Now, I share this in a lighthearted way because it reminds me of something that may be a bit more heavy-hearted upon you this morning. You may have worry and fear and doubt and most of all, insecurity about the very most important thing about you, your salvation in Jesus Christ. You feel stranded, you feel cold, you feel alone, and you're looking for any type of emotional experience that you've had in church to muster up some type of false assurance just to get you to the next day, just so that you can sleep tonight and serve Christ tomorrow. But let me tell you something. The Lord Jesus Christ... He is the keeper of your soul. He will rescue you. And what he has started in you, he is going to bring to completion. Rest assured, the words of John chapter 10 are coming. And they're coming to lend a tender hand to hearts that feel insecure this morning. So I want to invite you to stand with me in the honor of the reading of the word of God. John chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 30. And the irony here is as we stand in reverence of this text, we're all in a moment going to sit in humility because we understand exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying to us. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. You may be seated. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning. Over the past year, I have saturated myself in the security text because my soul has desperately needed it. And I think for many of you, your soul needs it as well. Texts like Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39, Jude, verse 24, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, which consequently I preached a few sermons ago from this pulpit last year, and particularly and especially here in John 10, 
27 through 30. Each of these texts work together in harmony together to provide a clear doctrine under what we would call our soteriology. Now that's just a $5 word for the study of salvation. But underneath the study of soteriology, there are a lot of truths that we must unpack. And one is found in all of these verses. It's a clear argument for the doctrine of eternal security or the security of the believer, or my favorite description of this doctrine, the perseverance of the saints. And what this means is once you become a believer in Christ, you will always be a believer in Christ. There is no one, there is no thing at any time that can separate you or take you away from your salvation in Christ. Now let's step back and gain some context of what we're going to be looking here at John 10, 27 through 30, by backing up into verses 22 through 26. See here, the Pharisees are trying to put Jesus in a predicament again. They're trying to ask him public questions in front of crowds to get him to say something that would give them justification to take his life. But here's the deal. No one took Jesus' life. Throughout John chapter 10, we see he was not a victim. He voluntarily and willingly laid down his life. John 10, verse 11, 15, 17, and 18, Jesus says unanimously, I lay down my life. He laid down his life for us upon the cross for our sins. Now this is all happening in the midst of this conversation during a feast known as the Feast of the Dedication. Now if you were to flip through your Old Testament, you're not going to find the Feast of the Dedication there because it was started in what's known as the intertestamental period. This is the time of 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. We also call this time the years of silence because there were no scriptures being written. There were no prophetic words being spoken. And during this time of silence... There was a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes from Syria who invaded Jerusalem. And as he invaded Jerusalem, he did the worst thing. He desecrated the temple where the sacrifices were made and where the Israelites worshipped. In fact, he even sacrificed a pig on the altar of God. Now, if you've ever wondered if we have a God that is patient and forbearing, the simple fact that he allowed this man to take a breath after he did that, should let you know how patient and forbearing our God is. And if you're here this morning and you haven't repented and turned to Christ, it's because we have a patient, forbearing God that is giving you opportunity to do so. Please do not test his patience because his forbearance will run out one day. Well, there was a family who became exhausted of this. Judas Maccabeus and his families rose up and decided over the next couple of years through a variety of guerrilla warfare tactics to take back Jerusalem. And sure enough, they did. And this account is recorded in what's known as the Apocrypha, which is a group of books that were written in this intertestamental time. However, they're not scriptural. Even though some might put them in their Bibles in between the Old and New Testament, the early church did not see the Apocrypha as inspired. They're more historical, which is where we learn this. And the Feast of Dedication was set aside, which we're reading here in this text, to remember these events during the time in Jerusalem. You might know this more familiarly today as Hanukkah, or the Festival of Lights that some of our Jewish friends celebrate during this time of year. It's also unique, not only this celebration, but particularly when this celebration is happening. If you look at verse 22, it tells us the time of year in John chapter 10 when the Feast of Dedication is occurring. It's wintertime. 
And on the calendar, that's mid-December. And this is the rainy and cold and windy season. And then in verse 23, it tells us where Jesus is at. He's on Solomon's porch. Now, some of your scriptures may say colonnade or portico. This is on the east side of the temple. And Jesus could go here in the midst of this conversation that we just saw with the Pharisees to be sheltered from the cold and the weather. But there's more to it than just that. Many commentators believe that winter is mentioned here not only as the time of year, but really an illustration of the hearts of the people of Israel. Gerald Boucher writes, The thoughtful reader of the gospel understands the time and temperature notations in John are reflections of the spiritual condition of the persons in the story. See, the people of Israel, and particularly the Pharisees, their hearts had grown cold, dead, and hard to the things of the Lord Jesus. And I don't know if you're having winter in your heart right now, but when you hear the word of God, when we sing the songs, when we gather corporately as a church, are you cold and hard and dead to the things of the Lord? Has winter produced that season in your heart? And we see this because Jesus is very frank with these people. In verses 25 and 26, he tells them twice, you do not believe in me. And then in verse 26, it is the crescendo of what these people need to hear. He says, you are not among my sheep. This is why you don't believe in me. Now, you may be sitting there and you may say, wow, Jesus sounds really harsh. Well, if I had a soapbox, I would pull it out from behind the pulpit, set it down, and step up onto it for a moment. Jesus may sound harsh, but what Jesus is doing this morning is he is being as loving as he could ever be to these people because he's doing this one vital thing that we need to do as believers, speaking the truth. And Christians, I've seen so many brothers and sisters in Christ who have cowered down in these days who are fearful to speak the truth. They are so afraid of what the world is going to think about us if we speak the truth. Hey, Newsflash, Jesus told us what the world's going to think about us. He said, if they hate me, which they did, they're going to hate you. And so here's what we must do. We must give the world the thing that they don't want to hear but need the most, the truth. It doesn't mean that we have to do it in a bombastic or brash manner, but we must give them the truth wrapped in boldness and love. Now, let me pull that soapbox back behind the pulpit and step back down because I can make a whole sermon out of that and dig back into the text together. And so these so-called harsh but actually loving words are followed by some of the most comforting passages of Scripture that you're ever going to read if you are a member of Christ's flock today. This passage that we read and that we're going to break down, it's like shade in the sun. It's an oasis in the desert. It's sleep for the insomniac. It's medicine for your pain. It's prescription lenses for your blurry eyes. It's a well that doesn't run dry. It's a warm blanket on a cold, wet day. And in these next four verses, we're going to be answering this question together as Jesus tells us the answer to this question. And the question is this, what kind of salvation do we have? Jesus says here, I'm going to tell you what kind of salvation we have. So let's look together in verse 27. Number one, we see that our salvation is personal. We have a personal salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what he says here. My sheep hear my voice. 
Now, Christ has already utilized this terminology throughout chapter 10. If you look at verse 3, he's using the analogy of the shepherd and the sheep, and he says, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. Verse 4, he continues that. They know his voice. And then in verse 16 of chapter 10, he applies the analogy to himself and says, they will listen to my voice. Here's the truth. There is power in the shepherd's voice to call his sheep. Now, in the context of this passage, it has been misapplied in many Christian circles. This is not sitting around listening for the mystical voice of God to tell you what you're supposed to do. He has spoken clearly and concisely to us through the Word of God. This is the voice of God calling people to salvation through presentation of the gospel. I want you to imagine for a moment that we're all sitting in a revival service, and the evangelist is preaching a fiery presentation of the gospel. And at the end of it, he gives an invitation for everyone in the room to repent of their sins and to believe upon Jesus Christ. Now, at that moment, everyone in the room heard that invitation. That's what we would call a general call. Everyone heard it. But as you're sitting there in the service, you realize not everyone has responded to that call. But where you're sitting in your seat, in your heart of hearts, you begin to feel your sin. You begin to feel the weight of it. You begin to know that you've sinned against God and you deserve the wrath of God put down on you. So you are being convicted by the Holy Spirit, but he also gives you clarity to know that Jesus Christ died for that sin. He absorbed that wrath for you. And if you will believe in him, he will wipe away your sins, save you and forgive you, and you will become one of his inside of you that day, that's not just the general call. That's what we would call the effectual call. It's called effectual because it's effective. God will do what he wills through his message and through his spirit working in the heart of a person. Have you experienced that call? You may hear it today. Have you answered that call? If not, why not? And it's not an audible voice. It's not something you're going to hear out loud, but here it is. It is the loudest voice that you're ever going to hear deep into your heart and soul. There's another aspect to this personal salvation that we have. In verse 27, Jesus says to them, I know them. In verse 14, this is something that he's repeated because he says, I know my own and my own know me. See, Jesus, the good shepherd, as he's referred to in chapter 10, knows his sheep personally. He's not like those cold, dead, distant, false, fake gods that we read about, that we hear about in the pagan religions. I mean, do you think Muhammad knows his followers? No. Do you think Buddha knows his followers? Absolutely not. Do you think Confucius knows his followers? Of course not. There is only one who is living and reigning and knows his followers, and his name is Jesus. The word know here in verse 27 is from the Greek word gnosko, and the verb know is not just knowing about someone, it is knowing someone intimately and personally. And Jesus knows all of his sheep intimately and personally. I mean, just think about where you sit with the billions of people on the planet right now. There is eternal, sovereign, majestic, glorious God of the universe, the creator and sustainer of all things, seeks to know you personally and intimately. Jesus' sheep, they hear his voice, and they know him. And verse 27 tells us the result of hearing his voice, responding to it, and knowing him, and he knowing you. What does it say? They follow him. 
Now, Martin Luther is clear from the Reformation. He says, we're not saved by good works, but we are saved to do good works. The point is that sheep tread in the footsteps of the shepherd. The simple fact that you've heard the voice of God and you've responded and you know him and he knows you, the natural outpouring in response to that is to follow him. Following him in obedience is not what saves you, but it is the fruit from the root of hearing his voice and knowing him. It wasn't uncommon for a shepherd in this day to brand their sheep. They would put brands on their ear and feet so that they could mark whose sheep they were. The Puritans connected that to us as believers. They would say that we were branded by the good shepherd on our ear and our feet. Because you notice in this passage, the ears and the feet are mentioned as parts of our body. Let me just ask you again, have your ears heard the shepherd effectually calling you to salvation? Have you answered that call? If not, why not? What are you waiting on? He has green pastures for you and his flock. But are your feet assuring you of the salvation that he has given you because you're walking in obedience to him? So first, we have a personal salvation, don't we? But secondly, from this text, our salvation is not only personal, but number two, our salvation is permanent. Look at the first part of verse 28. Jesus says these words, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Now, eternal life, by the very definition of it, cannot be taken away because it is a forever type of life. Remember, you're not on contract with the Lord. If you could be saved 10 years and lose that salvation, you wouldn't have eternal life. What kind of life would you have? 10-year life. You would only have a decade of life, not eternal life. We have a permanent salvation. Now, Jesus says here, and it's very important to notice this, I give. It's not I will give. This is written in the original Greek in the continuous tense, the present tense, which means it's an action that just keeps on going. We don't receive eternal life later. When do we receive it? Right now. Adrian Rogers spoke of this in a sermon. He said, everlasting life, it's not something you get when you die. Everlasting life is something you get when you believe. It's not waiting until you die to find out if you have it. For us who are in the flock of Christ, we're not on trial awaiting the verdict. It is done. We are innocent. We have been made clean by the blood of Jesus Christ, and we're in his flock. And eternal life starts the moment you hear his voice and know him. Just listen to what he says in verse 10. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I came so that they will have life. No, no, no. Present tense, they may have life. Because the opposite of eternal life is mentioned in this verse. It's perishing, which is eternal death. And what does the Lord say to his sheep here? See, because we have a very real place called hell. And it is conscious and it is eternal. And it is reserved for all of us who deserve it, which is every single person who has ever lived. But the Lord has been so kind and gracious that he has made a way for us to escape hell and spend eternity in heaven with him. And this is what he says about his sheep. They will never perish. In other words, if you're one of his sheep, you're not going to hell. I mean, seriously, step back and just take a deep breath for a moment and think about that. You are not going to hell. It is not reserved for you anymore. Now, inevitably, someone's going to ask, and rightly so, because when I hit on this topic last year in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, 
Many came up and said, what about those who received Christ and then walked away? Surely they had their salvation and gave it back, forfeited it, or the Lord took it away by something that they did. And we live in a day where we're telling people, do this outwardly thing, follow these three steps, and you're saved. And then we're not going to watch your life, and if you produce no fruit at all, that's okay, because we're going to keep telling you that you're saved because you did these outwardly things. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. Mark chapter 4 with the parable of the sower is clear. We know if someone is saved because their life will bear fruit. And I would answer that is that they have never been saved in the first place. And John would say the same thing in his epistle in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now that's a tongue twister, but what John is saying is if they go away and they stay away, they were never saved. Even though some Baptists have abused the perseverance of the saints. It's never been intended to be a license to sin. And if someone would believe or live that way, go back and check the fruit because it's barren. It's not there. As believers, we are going to veer off the path, aren't we? But a true believer, even though he or she will veer off because we are still in the flesh and we still sin, we will come back. The proof of our salvation is we finish the race that God began in and through us. We will come back. The Holy Spirit residing in all of our hearts, he will convict us of our sin. He will draw us to repentance. In the time that we're resistant to him, Hebrews is clear. God disciplines those whom he loves. He will take his children to the woodshed and wear them out to teach us a lesson for his glory and for our good. One of the hallmark texts is Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14 and talking about eternal security. And speaking of the Holy Spirit, it says, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. This verse is showing the permanency of our salvation. Paul says here, the Holy Spirit, he's our guarantee. You could write that down in all caps. Your salvation will happen. The Holy Spirit is guaranteeing it. He's our earnest money, our pledge, our engagement ring. We are committed. He is not pulling out of this deal. If you notice early in the text in verse 5 and verse 8, Jesus says what his true sheep are going to do in these type of situations when there's an opportunity to go away. In verse 5, he says they're not going to follow a stranger. They're not going to listen to the voice of a stranger. They don't know it. In verse 8, he said, thieves and robbers will come before me. My sheep aren't going to listen to them. We have a personal salvation, but praise be to God, we also have a permanent salvation. And thirdly, number three, our salvation is protected. We have a protected salvation. Look at the second part of verse 28. Jesus says these words, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now it's interesting here, let's jump ahead just a bit to the second part of verse 29. He says, no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The word snatch in both of these verses comes from the Greek word and it's translated with the sense of seizing, carrying away, and grabbing with force. And we look, the enemy, the world, and our own flesh are seeking to come at us with force to pull us away from Christ. And Christ says, when that happens, you're in my sovereign grip. And it would take somebody prying open the sovereign hand of God to get to you. Who can pry open the sovereign hand of God? It would take a hand stronger than his, and no hand exists in time 
and in eternity. And so what this means is not only are we in Christ's hands, but we're also in the Father's hands. We are doubly secured. We are doubly protected. When my daughter was small, I would take a piece of candy or a small toy, and I would put it in my hand, and I would hold on to it, and she would try to pry open my fingers to get to it. She never could. Now tomorrow, she starts her senior year. It's now car keys and $20 bills, and she could just rip my hand off to get to those things. But when she was younger, if I were to put that in my hand, and then I were to put my other hand on it, Whatever's in my hand is never going to see a crack of light. She's not getting to it. And the point here is that is how our salvation is protected by God. That's how personal the salvation is. And because he protects it in that way, that's how personal it is. That's how permanent it is. In verses 28 and 29, you notice the two words there. It says, who can get you? No one no one. Do you know what the word no one means in the original Greek? No one. No one's going to get to you. Our salvation is covered by Christ. It is guarded by God. We have a personal, a permanent, a protected, and fourthly, our salvation is a possession. Now we have to go back to the beginning of verse 29 to understand this concept and to flesh it out a bit. But as we look, Jesus says here, my father who has given them to me. Now who is the them here? Well, it's the sheep, it's believers, it's Christians. And we as Christians, we are possessions of Christ. He owns us, we are his. He's not our co-pilot. He's in the driver's seat, we're in the back seat. He's telling us where to go. He's calling the shots. And what we see here is God the Father giving believers to God the Son as a gift, as a love gift. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, it's littered with this reality. Here are just a couple to note. In verse 9, he says, those whom you have given me. In verse 11 of John 17, he says, keep them in your name which you have given me. In verse 24, he says it again, whom you have given me. As Christ is praying for his disciples in John 17 before the cross and by extension praying for us, do you realize that prayer hasn't stopped? In Romans chapter 8 verse 34 in referring to Christ it says this, who is at the right hand of God who is indeed interceding for us. I mean just think at this very moment the good shepherd is praying interceding for each and every one of his sheep. Do you think that one of Jesus' intercessions will fail? Do you think that one of his prayers for his sheep is going to fall? No, not a one. You know, we lose stuff all the time, don't we? Sometimes we lose something and we might find it, and sometimes we lose something and it is gone forever. When we lived in Fort Worth, when I was in seminary, we rented a small apartment, and I was coming home one night, and I was loaded down with stuff, and I unlocked the door to the apartment, the deadbolt and the regular lock, and I went inside, spent some time with Katie and Emily. The night passed, did a few things around the apartment. I went to bed. I got up the next day to repeat. Well, as I was getting ready to leave, I gathered all of my stuff. I grabbed my bag, and I was headed out the door. But as I was getting ready to head out the door, I realized I couldn't find my keys anywhere. And so I checked my pockets from the night before. They're not there. I checked my backpack. I checked the cushions on the couch. I am tearing the apartment up and down trying to find these keys. Finally, I get a spare set because I've got to go. And I start to head out the door. And as I'm heading out the door, I go to grab the handle to shut it and lock it. And I realize the entire night I left the keys in the lock. 
Now, at that moment, there was a great deal of relief that I found the keys. But I was also a bit petrified because I realized somebody could have grabbed the keys and stole my car. I left my family vulnerable to somebody coming in. And I think for far too long, some of you, and I've done this, you've been living your salvation as if that's how Christ is holding the keys to your heart. He's never going to lose you. He's never going to misplace you. He's never going to leave you unattended, unsecured, unlocked. Some of the shepherds in this time, they would put their sheep out to people known as hired hands. And you can see that in verses 12 and 13. He who is a hired hand, Jesus says, they don't own the sheep. They don't care about the sheep. When a wolf comes in, they flee because they love themselves more than the sheep. Let me tell you something. Jesus is not your hired hand. He's never going to farm you out. He's never going to subcontract your soul to anyone. Have you ever been into a business and you've been helped by the employee versus the owner in the midst of a problem? You notice how many times the owner is going to care for you so much more meticulously in all of the details. Christ is not an employee of your soul. He is the owner of it. You are his if you are in him. Jesus, the good shepherd, never loses a sheep. And when one wanders off, as we referenced, he does exactly what he says of the shepherd in the parable of Luke chapter 15. He leaves the 99, searches and grabs the one, and brings it back. What can misplace us from Christ? Hope you got the gist of it. It's nothing and no one. But if you don't believe me in the text I've used, listen to what Paul says. In Romans chapter 8, verse 38 and 39, Paul lists every possible circumstance under heaven, on earth, that could separate us from Christ. And then at the end, he says, not a one of them will do it. Not one. We go back to that hallmark text from Ephesians 1 on the security of the believer. Instead of verse 14, in verse 13 here, Paul says that when we believed in him, that is Christ, We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, in ancient times, the monarchy, they would seal royal documents. And as they sealed these documents, they would take the king's ring, press it into wax, put it into the document. And that did a few things. It showed the authority of the king. It showed the possession of what was going on and what the exchange was going to be about with this document. But it also was irrevocable. You couldn't take it back. And this is what God has done for us in our salvation. We are imprinted with the king's ring when we come into the flock of Christ. We are his. Our salvation is irrevocable. It's guarded by God. It is covered by Christ. And we see here, it's sealed by the Spirit. I love what W.A. Criswell said in arguing for this doctrine. He asked, can you unborn your children? Some of you might say, if you know how they acted yesterday, I would be looking for a way to find out. It's the same in the kingdom. How do we get into the kingdom? We're born into it. We cannot be born out of it. We never see an instance in Scripture where someone is unborn as God's child. We also never see an instance where someone is saved twice. If that was the case, Jesus would have to come down from heaven, climb back up on the cross, and be crucified again. His once-for-all sacrifice is all-sufficient for salvation. Amen, and praise God for that. Our salvation is personal. It's permanent. It's protected. It's a possession. And fifthly and finally, in verse 30, we see our salvation is a person. That's the kind of salvation we have. It is found totally, completely, and fully in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Look what Jesus says in verse 30. I and the Father are one. Now, it's important to look at the word one here because it's written in the original Greek in the neuter form, not the masculine form. Now, why is that important? It's important because Jesus is making an emphatic point. He is saying that I and the Father, we're of the same essence, but we're not the same person. And that's even more important because Jesus is saying the Father doesn't turn into the Son, and the Son turn into the Spirit, and the Spirit turn back into the Son and back into the Father. That's called modalism. And that's heresy, and it was declared heresy in church history early in the church. The Trinity is one, but with three distinct, co-equal, co-eternal members found completely in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Can I explain all that? Absolutely not. But I love trying to plumb the depths of it. Simply put, Jesus is making a claim to be of the same essence of the Father, which he's saying, I'm divine. He is proclaiming his deity. Now, if there's any doubt in your mind about that, just look at what happens in verses 31 through 33. When Jesus says this, the people were pretty upset. Not about the things that he so much did, but by what he said. His claim to deity and divinity is clear because here's their response. They pick up stones to stone him. And as they're prepared to stone him, they call him blasphemous. But here's the irony. They were the blasphemous ones that day. Because they accused Jesus of being something less than he was. And if you accuse Jesus of being anything less than God, you're being blasphemous. So when you meet someone, someone comes to your door, and you want to know what they believe, real quickly, just figure out what they believe about Jesus. And that's going to tell you what you need to know. If they believe that Jesus was not God, he was created, or he's only a part of salvation, bottom line, in love I say this, They are not Christians, period, the end. See, if Jesus was not who he says he was, I'm going to pack up and go home. In fact, I'm going to stop right now, walk off the platform, go get in my car and do something else. I mean, there's a lake out there just begging you to go fish it. I mean, there's a buffet wanting you to belly up to it and just gorge yourself. Television series wanting you to go home and binge watch it. There's got to be a trail out there just waiting for me to hike it. There's got to be so many other things I could go and do because Jesus is either who he said he was or he is not. And that is the divine hinge on what we do rest. Salvation isn't found in a place you go, a possession you own, a performance that you offer to God, a program you attend. Salvation is found in a person and his name is Jesus Christ. And this could not be possible if he and the Father here in verse 30 were not one. This is why we don't look to ourselves to keep our salvation. We look to the author, the perfecter, that finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ. So the only way for us to lose it is he goes down and Christ isn't going anywhere. Our salvation is personal. It's permanent. It's protected. It's a possession and it's a person. Now as we conclude this morning, I've prayerfully considered some implications from this text Now, where you sit, the Holy Spirit would work inside of you to show you how to specifically apply this text to your life. But I want to share a few insights that have helped me, and I hope that there'll be an encouragement and challenge to you as well. First, even though this has been shared often, it's worth sharing one more time in a condensed manner. When they were constructing the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, it is said that 23 people fell down into the rocky bay to their death. So the managers of the project got together and constructed a huge net that cost over $100,000 to help protect the men 
as they put it under the bridge as they worked up top. And it was said, it's reported, that only 10 people fell into that net for the rest of the project. And they finished the project in 25% faster time, knowing the safety that sat underneath them. The same is true for us. I mean, as we serve the Lord, he's got a safety net under us. It's called eternal security. And when this glorious doctrine finds its way into your heart, you're going to be so productive for the Lord. You're going to serve him with such joy and confidence, not because you feel like you have to, but goodness gracious, you're going to want to. So let me ask you, have you pondered, have you rested in the perseverance of the saints? Just watch what it's going to do for you. You're going to find that you're not looking at yourself, but you're keeping your eyes on Jesus as the one who takes care of your salvation. Secondly, every church, even ours, we can run the risk of being a church with a drawbridge. When we gather together, we pull that drawbridge up and no one else can come on in because we're surrounded by a moat and they can't get here. And we want the church to be focused on building up believers, but we also want the church to do what Christ has called it to do through the commission, and that's to reach the nations. And I say that to say there's lost sheep out there. There's lost sheep in your neighborhood, lost sheep at your schools, lost sheep at work. There's lost sheep in our communities. And we don't always know who these lost sheep are. But here's what I do know. Christ has left us here as his sheep to go and bear and share the gospel message with those who have yet to come. And as we go, God will use us living and speaking the gospel in their lives to do that effectual call in their heart. God uses his people through his message to reach those who have not yet come to him. So let me ask you, how might God use you this week to help draw someone into his flock? Thirdly, this is kind of what I started with and hinted at at the beginning. Uh, There's some of you, you feel insecure in your faith. You are desperately in need of the assurance of your salvation. In John 14, Jesus tells us, for all those who are his, he's going to prepare a place. And he's going to come back and get you and take you to that place. In my neighborhood, they've been doing a lot of construction. Somebody will buy a house, they'll tear it down, and then they'll build a big one in its place. Sometimes these houses sell pretty quickly, but other times they sit vacant for a long time. And you can't help but wonder as you look out your window, who is my new neighbor going to be? Let me tell you, in heaven, there's going to be no vacant lots. There's going to be no empty mansions. And that includes yours. If you've come to Christ, he's going to make sure you get home. So if you believe in him, let me just tell you, don't sit on your laurels and not push and strive to walk in obedience to him, but just sleep well tonight because he's got you. He's got you. Are you looking to yourself for Christ as the keeper of your salvation. And then lastly, can't end a message without saying this. There may be some of you here, you've not answered that call from the shepherd to come into the flock. Back in verse seven, Jesus says, I am the door for the sheep. Some of your versions may say gate. And in these Eastern sheep pens, it would be almost a full circle except one opening. And the shepherd would sleep in that opening. So no one would come into the flock unless it was through him. Well, back to John 14, Jesus says it's through him and only through him that we get to the Father. This morning, you may feel it. Everybody's hearing it, but internally you feel God working and drawing and the shepherd calling you to come into the flock. If that is you, don't wait. 
Don't delay. Come. Come. We're not coming down front, but what will happen is in a moment, there will be pastors available in the lobby. Any way that we can encourage you in the assurance of your faith, pray for a lost friend that you want into the flock, or to help you know how you can come into the fold through Jesus Christ. Won't you come?